The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week, Masha Alakina from Pussy Riot and the Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson discuss a new show of the Russian activist's work in Reykjavik, protests in Iran, we speak to the artist Shirin Neshat, and Puerto Rican art after Hurricane Maria at the Whitney in New York. As the exhibition Velvet Terrorism, Pussy Riots Russia opens at the Kling and Bang Gallery in Reykjavik, I talked to Masha Alakina, one of the founding members of Pussy Riot, and the artist Ragnar Kjartansson, one of the co-curators of the show. As protests continue across Iran, Amy Dawson speaks to Shirin Neshat, the artist whose work expressing solidarity with women in Iran was recently installed outside the Neue Nationale Galleria in Berlin. And this episode's Work of the Week is by the Puerto Rican artist Gabriela Torres Ferrer, Their 2018 sculpture, called Untitled Value Your American Lie, is part of a major new show at the Whitney Museum in New York, exploring art in Puerto Rico in the five years since the devastation wreaked by Hurricane Maria in 2017. Before that, as we approach the holidays, a reminder about our latest subscription offer. You can save more than 50% when you buy a complete print subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access as a gift for a friend, a colleague or even as a treat for yourself. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code XPOD22, that's XPOD22 or CAPS. And if you'd like to receive the January edition of the paper, make sure you subscribe before 12th of December. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening. Now, the Kling and Bang art space in Reykjavik, Iceland, has just opened the first ever survey of actions by the Russian feminist political art collective Pussy Riot. The exhibition's called Velvet Terrorism, Pussy Riot's Russia, after a term used by Bishop Tikhon Shevkunov, a confidant of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. The bishop used the term after Pussy Riot had performed a punk prayer, its most infamous performance in the Church of Christ the Saviour in Moscow in 2012. The exhibition in Reykjavik includes documentation of that and other renowned actions by the group, as well as showing lesser-known activities. It's been put together by the Pussy Riot member Maria or Masha Alekina, who's been arrested and imprisoned by the Russian state on numerous occasions. She's worked with three curators on the show, Dorothea Kirsch, Ingebjörg Sigurjons Dottir and the the artist Ragnar Kjartansson, and I spoke to Masha and Ragnar about the show. Ragnar and Masha, I wanted to begin just by asking about how you met, because you met in Moscow just before, actually, the war with Ukraine began. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So 2020 and 2021, I didn't go from Russia, so I was only in Moscow. And 2021 was my second criminal case, so I was wearing electronic bracelet, and all my life was between, let's say, different police stations and these prison offices where I should go to to say hello to my prison inspector who is responsible for the bracelet. And me and Ragnar, we have a common friend, Misha, who is a photographer, and when my house arrest had a break in autumn, he invited me to guess. Basically, I didn't know what is guess, but he told me like new space in Moscow. So I've lost the opening, but <laughs> because I forgot. And then I came after some days and, and Misha introduced me to Ragnar and he showed me the whole exhibition. I think it took like two, three hours and that looked like very official state visit. So he, <laughs> he was talking with me very differently from what I was used to here last, let's say, two years. And that's it. I mean, there is one funny story. I was filming the exhibition, some pieces which I loved. And I never saw Pichal Pobedit Shasti before. So I've seen the room with the video. And I recorded it, and there was one funny thing which I found. There is a title of the work, of the artwork. So for all of the works, they were in English and in Russian. So in English, they wrote God, 
and in Russian that was untitled. So I just took a photo of that and put the stories with some funny comments that they censored God <laughs> in the center of Moscow. Yeah, it was very good that Masha pointed this out because it was this kind of weird censorship that you go like, okay, the piece is called God, but it cannot be called God in Russian because it's like, because we don't want to hurt the feelings of religious people, blah, blah, blah. Which is like, you know, it's kind of this Taliban I th- bullshit. I think <laughs> censorship in Russia is really, I mean, it's really weird. It's totally out of logic. You can try to find logic there, but it doesn't exist. People just afraid to be prosecuted and do as much as they can just to make sure that they will not. At the same time, there are a lot of really good people and artists as well, but the level of fear and the level of censorship and the thing that this censorship actually exists for a long time and it's uh, this thing make quite big impact. Doing this, I don't know, doing its work, people start to unfortunately follow very, very strange way of thinking and censor themselves. And self-censorship is actually the most dangerous one. But anyway, we, we met at autumn and then I think uh, next time closer to winter and there were already signs that the war will actually be. Yeah. And like what you say about the censorship, it was like this crazy feeling of working in Moscow and, you know, meeting so many fantastic people. And it was like a totally different world. Like one third of all the people I was working with in the exhibition, like actors and technicians, they were one third of them were Ukrainian. And it's like a world that's gone now. And But the, the crazy part was that like Masha with her uncle bracelet was like the first relaxed person I met in Moscow. <laughs> It was like, okay, this person is actually free. So in other words, you detected an atmosphere, Ragnar. But is it right you were already a big fan of Pussy Riot? So you knew of Masha's work anyway, right, Ragnar? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I was a really big fan of Pussy Riot. And I mean, I mean, I thought a lot about, because, you know, when you're invited to do a show in Moscow, you think you cannot just do a show. You know, it has to be in context with the oppression and madness happening. So I decided to do a show and do some kind of a subversive thing, you know. I don't know if it's activism or just like, it's like subversive art. Like Strindberg said, torpedo under the arc is what art should be. <laughs> but it was, I mean, of course, very inspired by their approach to political actions. I work in a very, very, very different way than Pussy Riot, of course, in my art. <laughs> but I've always been fascinated by politics and art, like how through art history, like art has always reacted to censorship etc and your show directly accessed that material right and you constructed a whole reconstruction of the state Tretchikov gallery in your own studio to depict this act of kind of violence against painting but which also had kind of really deep political connotations as well right yeah it's like this uh this attack on uh the painting of ivan the terrible and uh his son which like i think i became an artist because like my mom and dad went to moscow in the 80s and my mom came back home and was like, Ragnar, in Moscow, there is the most beautiful, terrible, scary, sad painting I've ever seen in my life. And it's such a powerful work that somebody tried to kill it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, this is it. Because it was like an orthodox fanatic who attacked it in 1913 with a knife. And I was like always so interested to see the painting. But then when I went to Moscow, I could not see it because it was attacked again in 2018 by a nationalist. So I found it very interesting that like, you know, this kind of one of the greatest Russian paintings, you know, like these Putin motherfuckers are always talking about the Russian culture, but like they actually attack (laughs) constantly what is the great Russian culture. And that's like a very good example that like, you know, this painting has twice been attacked by nationalists, like the national painting. (laughs) Ivan Grozny himself, uh, he's like, Maybe so he was a very brutal person. So he started repressions. He made inner circle of uh, the group, which, you know, exists near the Tsar, which you can see now around Putin because he loves figures like Ivan Grozny or Stalin, basically the most bloody dictators we ever had. 
And this painting uh, is actually uh, showing how, how Ivan Grozny is killing his son. It's this interesting portrait of, you know, like the totalitarian ruler killing the future. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I wanted to ask you, Masha, the, the exhibition in Reykjavik is called Velvet Terrorism. And this was a term that was used to describe Pussy Riot's work. Can you set that context, explain why that term was used and what it means in that context? When we did punk prayer and after a week they opened a criminal case and arrest us and put us to prison. So propaganda, they start to work very hard against us. So there was every day news pieces about how bad we are and what a big blasphemy we've done. I mean, they presented us like a real evil, which is attacking a god, almost like uh, Satan's daughters who are kind of, you know, attacking the most sane place in Moscow. So there were, let's say, politicians and propagandists who made crazy statements, but a lot of crazy statements were done by church people. One of them is Putin's personal bishop, and also a figure who has quite high place in this church era. He said that what we are doing is a velvet terrorism. So we are kind of a shy girls. <laughs> so I mean, I just found it so crazy because this guy is not just, I mean, a church person. He is also an author of the books and these books are quite popular in Russia. I mean, one of the books is like a bestseller book. Before that, he had an image of so-called soft liberal person. And he said that. I mean, it's just for, for me, it's just quite funny that uh, the system, w- which is terrorist itself, and uh, people who re- represent the system are terrorists, uh, calling someone who are against them actually a terrorist. So that's why we, yeah. I think put that to the title. Can you explain to us how you felt at the moment when you were performing Punk Prayer? It must have been extraordinarily exhilarating to a certain extent, but also was there an element of fear because you knew what the state was capable of. So tell us more about how you actually felt when you were part of that. First, we did not expect no criminal case, uh, international attention or something like this. We, We didn't expect that. So you should know that to do each action, you should prepare yourself minimum two weeks. Usually it's a month. So it's a big preparation. It maybe looks like uh, quite, you know, punk and and fun dancing with balaclavas, but it's actually, you know, we're, we're dealing with places which are kind of under surveillance and secure. So you should prepare yourself to do that first and to have your documentation not lost. So people who are actually holding the cameras and doing all the documentary uh, should be as professional as possible because you can be arrested, but your documentator should be safe and should know where to put his or her flashcard, etc. So we were rehearsing almost a month and I think we, we were focused uh, on just one thing to do that. I mean, it's not easy. And when we did this uh, 40 seconds, uh, I remember the moments uh, when we started to watch, actually, documentation in the cafe, just, I don't know, across the street, let's say, across several streets. In the center of Moscow, nobody wanted to publish it because girls were saying, like, come on, this fail. It's like 40 seconds. We have two minutes songs. It's like a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, by some accident, someone from, I don't know, journalists maybe, or someone just published the information that we've been there, so we didn't have a choice. I mean, part of our team that time, Tasha and Vasya, our filming people, and now they are film directors, uh, they made a brief video and we just published it. And that's it. Yeah, the rest is history, yeah. There's this really interesting thing, and I think it's from your autobiography, a quote, and I think this seems to me to that it must be at the heart of what you're trying to do in the show, Ragnar, which is that Masha describes actions like those as having to be desperate, sudden and joyous. And it strikes me that when you're putting together a show of Pussy Riot's work, 
you've got to somehow capture that. Can you say something about that? So what we think is so crazy important about doing this overview show is like here you have an art group that has done three performances that you know have been kind of worldwide famous, you know, like in world news just in the last 10 years. But also along with those performances, there is these like crazy, beautiful actions that were staged in Russia. Nobody has seen, I, I hadn't seen them before we started collecting material for the show. It's like these really interesting performances where Pussy Riot is playing with the idea of having this kind of almost like non-consensual collaboration with the state, where the state becomes a participant in this kind of dance. I mean, Pussy Riot are really working with the idea of dancing with the devil. And so the show is, is like, is all the actions, but also it's really interesting like to see the state response to the actions and that can be totally Kafkaesque and, you know, very, very psychedelic surreal. So I just think it's crazy interesting. Yeah, so Masha, do you want to comment then on what Ragnar just said, that idea that you incorporate the reaction of the state into the work, that the action continues long beyond that initial um, performance element and then it involves the whole context around the work? Well, I think art should be in context. It's basically one of the basic goals of art. It's a context to a feeling of the context and somehow reflection and reaction. What we are doing, we are kind of asking uncomfortable questions and, of course, receive reaction. I mean, reaction is always, of course, important because that was not only like imprisonment, that was a physical violence several times, that was poisoning by military poisons, etc., that was criminal cases. But for me, it's important to show how Russia was changing during these 10 years and how we actually came to the point where we are now, because now Russia is a terrorist state, officially. And it's the biggest country in Europe. And it's actually went on the pure Nazi road. And I think it's very time to, to start to think how it was possible and what was the road and what we can do now to stop that because war is still going. So at this point, I think art can be an interesting way to, to express and to show this situation. But one of the things that strikes me is that you've been telling us all through whatever means you could about Putin and his regime. And the West has been hugely complacent in this period. So how do you feel now that so many other people are condemning Putin who would not have done before? It must be deeply frustrating given the warnings that you've been sending out on a regular basis over the last 10 years. I mean, I think we should divide this conversation, divide usual people from, let's say, top businessmen and politicians, because for some politicians and let's say, top business people, that is just a business. And they put business to first place and human lives. To the second one, it's not first time in the history when it's happening. And yes, it's like, it's terrible. And it shouldn't be like that. I mean, a lot of people have been a bit, let's say, naive. And they've been naive because they didn't know what is going on. And they didn't know what is going on because there was almost no coverage. We had so terrible things. I mean, we had annexation of Crimea. We had all these like oppositional leaders and artists who've been poisoned by military poisons. And we had political murders in the very center of Moscow. We have Chechnya region, hell inside hell, where they constantly killing gay people and just cut clitters on all the women and all of that like existed. And somehow there was almost no coverage of all of that. Uh, Western media were covered, uh, I don't know, doping scandals in the sport. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, some bullshit, but not all of that. I mean, this is a shame, but it's never late to, to change things. And now it's still... A lot of things should be done. 
It's still Russian gas and oil in Europe. It's still European money. Billions and billions going directly to the hands of Putin. It's still not all oligarchs are sanctioned. There are a lot of top entertainment artists, if you're talking about art, who are serving this regime, who are singing Alleluia to this war, who are going to the Donbass, like directly to the war, and like singing Alleluia to this war, and somehow they are not sanctioned. This should be like a line. I'm very happy that now officially Putin's regime is a terrorist regime. It took 10 years to clarify one thing. I mean, it could be done before. For example, also situation with a Boeing, with MH17. It took eight years for Gag court to investigate one simple thing, that three assholes from Donbass shoot the plane. I mean, I searched that in one night. I mean, I was not only one who wrote an article about that. There were like hundreds of us, afterwards thousands of us. All Ukraine were telling, like, come on, there's these people. And there were European citizens, 300, almost 300 died. It shouldn't be so long. I mean, U- European bureaucracy is like, I mean, it's a bad thing. It's real hell. And it gives this regime a good ground to grow. So we, of course, can talk about the past. And we should talk about the past because otherwise we will not understand the mistakes. But... In nowadays, it's uh, still a lot of things to do. Absolutely. I wanted to end because I believe that you two are making a work together as part of this exhibition. Can you say something about that? Yeah, so we're going down to uh, to Klingenbang, which is where the exhibition will take place. And Klingenbang is an artist-run space in Reykjavik. And it's basically a collective of like the best art place in Reykjavik. And and we're just going to go down there and like there's like, you know, kind of a whole gang of artists just getting everything ready and plugging in televisions, putting up the photographs and just like creating the show. And, you know, and volunteers are coming to perform in the show, etc. And, and then the fun thing, like Marcia is just like, you know, writing everything just on the wall, all the stories. And I think that's a really great approach to it. <laughs> it's crazy fun. And then we were shooting... Um, a video in my studio of one member of Pussy Riot P on a portrait of Putin. And it was a really great Monday morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to end. Ragnar and Masha, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Velvet Terrorism, Pussy Riots Russia is at Kling and Bang in Reykjavik until the 15th of January 2023. Pussy Riot will perform Riot Days at the National Theatre of Iceland in Reykjavik tonight, 25th of November. Proceeds from the concert and the exhibition go to supporting Ukraine. And you can hear an in-depth interview with Ragnar Kjartansson from 2020 on our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening now. Coming up, Shirin Neshat on the protests in Iran and the art that emerged after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A portrait that may be of William Shakespeare has gone on view in London with a £10 million price tag. The early 17th century portrait's attribution is being debated, but it's inscribed with the date 1608 and the age 44, the correct age for the playwright at the time. The stylized letters RP at the top right of the painting are the cipher of Robert Peake the Elder, who was an associate of Shakespeare. Meanwhile, a Courtauld Institute examination of the picture in 2016 concluded that the pigments were consistent with the period. Duncan Phillips, the art expert who uncovered many of these new details, said there's more evidence for this portrait of Shakespeare than any other known painting of him. The canvas is being sold by an anonymous owner by private treaty, so not at auction, and it's currently on show at the Grosvenor House Hotel in London. The National Gallery of Canada has laid off four senior staff members, according to the Globe and Mail newspaper in Toronto. Among the high-level departures, which were announced last week, are the chief curator, Kitty Scott, and the indigenous art curator, Greg A. Hill, who's worked at the museum for more than 20 years. An internal memo to staff from the gallery's interim director and chief executive, Angela Cassie, cited numerous factors for the departures and added that for privacy reasons, the gallery would not discuss the details. But Hill confirmed 
his exit in an Instagram post which stated that he was being fired, quote, because I don't agree with and am deeply disturbed by the colonial and anti-Indigenous ways the Department of Indigenous Ways and Decolonisation is being run. And finally, more artists have left the commercial gallery Koenig after allegations of sexual misconduct were made against its founder, Johann Koenig. The allegations were first published by the German newspaper Die Zeit in August, and the latest departures from the gallery include the Berlin-based Italian artist Monica Bonvicini and the Danish-Norwegian duo Elmgreen and Dragset. Koenig, one of Germany's most prominent dealers, denies all allegations made against him. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's invites you to see history in a new light with their Classic Week auction series, celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. Through the 15th of December, Christie's London will present seven live and online auctions, with lots spanning Roman marbles, ancient engraved gems, old master and 19th century paintings, sculpture, rare books and manuscripts. This season's highlights include Anthony van Dyck's captivating portrait of Queen Henrietta Maria, a majestic Roman marble Athena, a striking picture from Dame Laura Knight's Clifftop series, and a rare papyrus that offers the first evidence that the ancient Greeks were aware of the Babylonian lunar theory. The pre-sale exhibition will open on the 2nd of December at 8 King Street in the heart of the St James's District in London. Entry is free and open to the public. Visit christies.com to find out more. Welcome back. Now, demonstrations against Iran's clerical establishment continue across the country. They began in September following the death in custody of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who was detained by morality police for allegedly breaking strict rules relating to the wearing of hijabs. The protests have spread to around 140 cities across Iran, making them the most significant demonstrations against the Islamic Republic in decades. The Iran Human Rights Group has said that hundreds of protesters have been killed in security forces' violent Response to the unrest. The Neue National Galleria in Berlin recently unveiled a work by the Iran born New York based artist Shirin Neshat on its facade in response to the protest. It's regarded as the highest profile institutional show of support for protesters in Iran after museums in the UK and the US were criticised for failing to acknowledge the dire human rights situation in the country. Our acting digital editor, Amy Dawson, spoke to Shirin Neshat about the situation in her native country and her response to it. So Shirin, thank you so much for joining us. I want to talk about how these explosive protests in Iran, but also all over the world now at this point, began. And that's with a young girl called Masa Amini. Can you explain what happened and how we've developed to this point? Yeah, Masa Amini was a Kurdish young woman that was just uh, on a holiday in Tehran with his family, his brother and his uh, mother and father. And I think she just showed up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And she even had the hijab on, but the slightest hair was showing, just not perfect. And um, it's just a usual thing. They grabbed her and, and then she tried to leave and they grabbed her even more. They put her in the bus and beat her up. And eventually... They took her to this place called the Education Center. They said that she was fine. She had a pre-existing condition, but she didn't. Something happened during this time that they beat her and she fell ill. They wouldn't even take her to the hospital until she basically went in a coma for three days. And she died, you know, and it was obvious that it was because of the beating. Um, but they claimed, the government claimed that she had an existing illness. And so while she was in the hospital, uh, a lot of people started to gather around the hospital. And this turned into a protest. But just going back a little bit, in the previous months, uh, at least a year or so, we have seen pockets of women unveiling in public, just taking off their scarves or and just hanging it on a, on a piece of wood in public, and, and some of them getting in trouble. But there was this kind of underground activity going on, people unveiling over the mandatory hijab. Masa Amini's death just sort of culminated in a way of unleashing a rage of uh, all these 
women that have been just so frustrated by the ridiculousness of this law that even the slightest hair showing it could be a crime. And also that the government in the last years had become far more hardliner, particularly with Raisi in power, um, where before it was slightly more relaxed, more moderate with the reformists. So just to explain also the last few years, the government has really clashed down on their codes, and this had really angered the women of Iran. So the loss of Nasa Amini was like something sacred was lost. A woman, a young, beautiful a woman's life was lost, particularly because she was veiled. And so the absurdity of that just exploded into this movement of woman life freedom, and, and it just confirmed in women's minds that this enough is enough. Yeah, so women have been, since then, finding ways to protest. They've been removing their scarves in some cases, setting fire to them in the streets. They've been marching, even cutting their hair. And these protest movements have been shared across the world. So people have been protesting in the streets in most major cities. There was a protest in New York just this weekend, which we'll talk about a bit more later. And also on social media, people sharing Mahsa Amini's name and cutting their hair in solidarity with the women and also the men who are protesting in Iran. So what exactly is it that the protesters are now demanding? Are they demanding a new regime or just freedom for women or freedom not to wear the veil what is it organized have they agreed what it is that they're demanding well i think that the hijab is just one issue but it's way more complex than that it's uh, the condition of iranian people living under a dictatorship under constant surveillance under constant control and this is the reality that they're seeing that especially as you know that the women who are protesting, the young men, are very young, between 16 to 25, that the future looks very bleak. This direction of going on with these hardliners and the way that they have zero freedom, and, you know, mind you, they have access to the Internet, they see how the rest of the world lives, is that um, the future looks really, really bleak for these people. And they just refuse to let that continue but I think for the women, it's even more complicated because they see how their body is used as, as a kind of a battlefield for this men's ideology, but also as the image of the Islamic Republic of Iran. The woman behind the veil is their image to the world. And they refuse to be that. They refuse to play their game. And basically, they're saying, look, religion is fine, but you have to separate religion from the state. You have to keep your religion at home. You cannot impose your ideology, your faith on me, uh, basically. So the hijab is one thing, but there's far more than that. The control of their social behavior, uh, the laws uh, that separates the woman from the men in many different legal aspects. So um, in the economy, um, the terrible situation with unemployment and corruption, and they just want an end to this dictatorship. It's ironic that the hair and the woman's body becomes like a, a symbol of resistance against this dictatorship. And what's really interesting, and I just want to refer to my own work, if you remember, I made Turbulence, where the man sang a very traditional song, and you know it was more or less a conformist, and people applauded. When the woman came, she had no audience. So when she sang, it was like a cry of, uh, it was just like a protest. She just screamed, it showed a range of emotions. So when you see the woman going on, this protest is because, look, they've been up against the wall for so many years and they just had enough and they just don't want to continue like that. And so, yes, it started with the hair, but it's a resistance, it's a rebellion against a dictatorship, an end to an era that has been 43 years of horrific, horrific situation in Iran. And after more than two months since this movement began, protests are continuing and people are now talking about, is this going to become a full-blown revolution? But before we get on to that 
let's talk about how the art world has been reacting. And you posted on Instagram where you've been very active posting things about the protests and about all of the young people who've sadly lost their lives on the streets at the hands of the regime and also some of the creative videos and songs and things that have been coming out from Iran. Um, But on the 30th September, you, along with art critic Jerry Saltz, did a call to action saying, come on, the art community needs to kind of lend their voice to this and show solidarity because there had been such silence. What was your immediate reaction to that? Like, did you see much change? Was there a lot happening in the kind of weeks that followed? Well, you know, I hate to say this, but somehow I feel that the art world feels that they're immune to humanitarian issues that happens in, in the world. And it kind of exists in this bubble. And, and this whole idea of art and activism, it's a really like a bad name. You know, you have like, oh, Ai Weiwei or what. I just knew that it's very important to raise awareness about what is going on in Iran because we understood as Iranians that the more international community becomes aware of the situation, the seriousness of the situation, the more pressure on the government. And who am I dealing with is the art world. I'm, I'm not, you know, music industry or dance or fashion, right? So every person who has any public voice goes to the community that they're most closest to, ask them for their solidarity. And I just was dumbfounded by, you know, during the George Floyd catastrophe and the whole protest, how the museums, the art world actually did come in the solidarity with the African-American people. But somehow they just went quiet and as if, you know, oh, this is just Muslims fighting each other or this is just not art. And uh, interestingly enough, Jerry Saltz was very curiously following the whole course of events. Slowly, we saw some curators and some institutions showing support. And, you know, sometimes it just took like a post on Instagram. But somehow I I think that the art community feels that they need to shield themselves from directly political discourse, that they just want to play it safe, you know. And I have to tell you one thing, as an Iranian who's somewhat known in the Iranian community, people do expect me to be vocal and do Mm. expect me to reach out. I reached out to Natalie Portman and she responded to Isabella Rossellini to... You know, I I had to literally do things I never do, ask them for their help. You know, we had to sign petitions. and You know, none of these are in the order of things I like to do, but I know it matters. It matters for those young people. It matters for the government of Iran to know that the world is watching. Mm -hmm. And so since then, it's been interesting. We have had some response, but some institutions continue to just be very silent. Yeah, I noticed that some institutions, rather than speaking out themselves, have kind of done side-related projects. So, for example, the Met Museum asked you to respond to an Iranian work in their collection rather than say something directly about the situation. And another example, the British Museum planned to put on a series of works that document demonstrations during the Islamic Revolution. So there's kind of associations, nudges to talk about the current situation, but not so much a direct response. And then when you do get a direct response, for example, at the Neue National Gallery in Berlin, who reached out to you and asked if you wanted to be involved in a project, it was a gathering really, wasn't it, on the 30th of October, bringing together performers to do spoken word and singing and dancing and to just kind of be together in support of people in Iran. And you were asked to show a work there. And then that was probably one of the biggest direct actions, but it did receive quite a bit of criticism. Okay, so now we're talking about different issues. One is that the art community and the other is the Iranian community that itself could be quite divided. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding and there's a lot of division in terms of people who don't quite understand the intention of the other. And this is what's interesting is we are all talking about this is one of the most unifying 
moments in Iranian history, I personally had given up on the idea of ever seeing a change of the regime. And these days we say, no matter what is your ideology, what is your interest, we all share this issue that we want to remove this government. And so it's been a very unifying movement and revolution and every one of us doing our own task to keep this movement going, including, you know, I've been doing tons of interviews, lending my work, you know, whatever. You know, in Piccadilly in London, I gave my one work, which we felt I was a very proper, appropriate image. In Berlin, it was an image called Unveiling, which I made before The Woman of Allah, which is based on poetry of Furul Farouk Saad. It's about a woman, psychological, emotional constraints, being under the veil and wanting to be free of the veil. And you could see the veil opening up. Now, many Iranians who don't know the history of this work, they think this is part of The Woman of Allah, which was very specifically about the Iranian revolution, the religious fervor. This was not. This was a very rebellious uh, piece that was really suggesting that the woman wants to unveil, in fact, was uh, called unveiling. Regardless, many Iranian people, the minute they see the veil on an image, they think, oh, this artist is in solidarity with the government, etc., which is the last thing I'm, in fact, in exile because of that government. So unfortunately, but naturally there are divisions between people in any community. There's a lot of emotions that are high. A lot of people are so much on the edge, including myself. The last few days, for example, seeing so many people getting killed. And we get very sensitive. You know, for example, I could see someone say, oh, now she just wants to promote herself with no understanding that so-and-so said, I would like to, like Klaus Bissenbach, I would like to show my solidarity in my institution And with the Iranian people, I would like to have this image. Would that be okay? And I looked at it, the content, and I realized that's exactly what it's about. And I said, fine. And then soon, all these people came gathered. A minority of people have criticized it, which everybody has the right to criticize. It never bothers me because I'm used to it. But unfortunately, going back to the arts world and the art publication, which I find quite shameful that at the end, those publications end up focusing on these conflicts among critics of me, as opposed to the issue itself, the uprising. I mean, we have a genocide going on in Iran, but they prefer to publish for their bigger readership some kind of a gossipy thing, like, oh, you see, like canceled culture or something, to show how Iranian people are fighting among themselves, which is really, I think, is wrong and it's not fair to the effort that I have put in and the mood of the Iranian community right now to disrupt that. What I was really disappointed about is that, once again, the art world, instead of, especially this last week, instead of really focusing what is wrong and what are other protests art that are being made? What are the genocide that is taking place? How are the artists reacting? They do a huge spread about the antagonism and animosity against me, which is, has a long, dark history. And people who have always been suspicious of me because of Women of Allah thinking that those works are made to celebrate the Islamic ideology, which is actually not true. It's opposite. Meanwhile, the government of Iran has made me be kind of living in exile because they find that problematic. So I'm used to being beaten around by different parties among the Iranian people for their misunderstanding, for their jealousy, for whatever. But I respect that. The part that bothers me is how the Western, the international publications end up focusing on that instead of other things that are much more important. And let's talk about this work that you briefly mentioned there, which is the other major commission that you've done since the protests began. They're digital pieces that have been shown with Circa, and Circa's a London-based art platform that commissions work for digital billboards. So your works were shown in the huge screens in Piccadilly Circus and also in Hollywood on screens there. And lots of people gathered kind of to witness it and to kind of use it as a centre point for protests and for, you know, kind of being mindful and things like that. One of the things that people have been saying is that you're profiting from this moment, but people don't realise that 50% of the proceeds 
for that piece were donated to Human Rights Watch and the other half were given back to Circa to keep commissioning this kind of thing. Do you want to talk about how that piece came about? Circa just suddenly reached out to me. They said because of the climate in Iran, they cancelled another project and they wanted me to do a work. Zero profit for me. I would have never, ever agreed to it. They're not for profit. They said they're going to get their ass to Human Rights Watch And basically, I was very honored that an image of my work, and obviously for a lot of people, maybe yourself, know that my work has always been centered around issues of women in relation to religion and politics, especially the female body, and how the female body has been an embodiment of ideological and religious rhetorics. So naturally, a lot of people came to me because my work for so many years has been exactly focused on the rebellion, the defiance of women in light of oppression. Mm-hmm. And that image that we picked for Piccadilly was the woman in the one hand held the paisley, which is very much rooted in traditional Persian iconography coming from, you know, decorative motifs. And the other was the bullets, which is a reality of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the violence that is always generated by that. And how this woman is conflicted between the force of violence and the lyricism of a culture that she's born into. It it made perfect sense, and they really love that image. For me, it was a great honor that even this weekend on Sunday, I saw a few people carrying my work as a placard for the protest. All my life, my work has been about the woman and element of protest, you know. But there was zero profit, so I don't know where that came from. Again, there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation. So I don't blame my critics. I just think that they just don't know the reality. And um, you're posting a lot of videos and images every day on your Instagram from Iran and elsewhere, but mostly from Iran. And a lot of it seems to be like dancing and music some absolutely beautiful songs that have been made in response to the protests, but not so much like on the visual arts front. Do you think that there's not so much of a visual response to the protests as there is musical? Actually, um, there's a lot going on. And unfortunately, it's hard to be able to single them out in a, in a very concrete way. But for example, the protesters, the young protesters are doing what I would say performance art like they're doing all kinds of things that that are just tremendously powerful there was a group of young ones that were going to fill up the empty swimming pools with color red like blood or there were people who created this choreography of people seated against a pole like to replicate Nur Khoda this person who was killed you know leaning against this pole so there's a lot of art in terms of stencils on the streets in terms of performance in terms of but also some people have sent me work but it's not about singling out an artist but just to showing how the movement is so extremely creative you know for example a footballist like pretend like he's cutting his hair next there are stencils all over the walls in Tehran of um, this guy who's trying to pretend like he's cutting his hair because it becomes a symbol. A lot of these things could be only understood by Iranian people because you would have to, like us, follow the news 24 hours to understand the nuances, you know. Today, for example, in Iran and England are playing a soccer. We've heard for three days. I saw some incredible video this morning that some people edited clips of the violence in the last few days in Kurdistan, but the sound of the cheering of football match, showing the ridiculousness of the suffering of people being killed right and left by this gunshots. Meanwhile, on the other side, people are cheering for a soccer game. And that is so powerful that Go Shifte Farahani put that. So it's a very creative way of highlighting the absurdity of certain things and the government of Iran, for example. I don't know if you know, a lot of young people have been going around and throwing off the, the turban of the uh, Mullahs on the ground. There's been this huge movement of young girls and boys throwing their turbans on. It's just astonishing. So there's a lot of humor, there's a lot of beauty, there's creativity going on, but it's not something that belongs to our art world in a gallery or a museum. It's more like a, 
a grassroots movement, and I, I just love that. But also, you see a lot of music, a lot of dance, you see a lot of animation. It's just an outpour of creative, imaginative work that is being done. Also, a lot of them are in Farsi language. Someone was complaining to me yesterday that it's sad because a lot of the, our friends don't really quite understand what is being said. Yeah, I saw a lot of requests for translations, which is yeah. a whole job in itself. As I was saying before, it doesn't look like these protests are set to stop anytime soon. People have started striking in protest of the government, whether they be individuals or small businesses or people working in nationalized industries like steel and oil. And those are the kinds of things that really can trigger big change. And there are more calls for protests which are now being linked to the anniversary of the bloody November protests in 2019, where thousands of people again died um, at protests against the government. And so some people are now starting to say that this could be the start of a full revolution. Do you think, is that possible? And if so, what is the best way for the art world and individuals to support the movement? I don't think this is any longer a movement. This is a revolution because it's I think it has every quality, every element of a revolution. I think the government is learning that it's, it's losing because the more they brutalize and kill people, the more protest. I mean, even, I don't know if you've been following the last three days, they have been doing gun down of Mahabad, this town in Kurdistan, and people are unarmed. The government came with tank and started shooting at innocent people. I mean, they shot this beautiful 10-year-old boy, Kion the other day. So what happens is that the more they kill, the more furious people become and the more mass come out. And in fact, it's astonishing this morning I woke up, I saw the largest crowd yet in Kurdistan, which is really, really amazing, knowing that they can't even go buy bread without getting killed. They're just randomly shooting at their windows. And so I think this is what's really hopeful is that the brutality doesn't seem to be intimidating the people of Iran. And the other is that the government seems to be exercising this first on the Kurdistan, which is a Sunni population, which is more of a minority group, to see if they succeed there, then they can do it in Tehran, which would be their last stop. And obviously they're losing. And not only that, the people of Iran are 100% behind Kurdistan. So there is a solidarity, there's a unity among Iranian people that they just won't let up. Every person who dies, they say there's thousands of people behind that dead body. It really is quite tremendous. The last thing I want to say, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day during a protest. He's an old man, and he said, you know, when I listen to the protest and I hear the woman, I get so afraid. Their sound is so loud. It's so, <laughs> it comes from their gut. Like we go to protests and we, you know, we are screaming. There's nothing. You listen to these voices of 16-year-olds at high school. When they say their slogans, your whole body is shaking because it comes from the bottom of their heart. Mm. And that's what is so convincing and that's why it's been so contagious. I don't know if you follow there every weekend and almost every day all over the world, 100 cities on Saturday, thousands and thousands. In New York, they were like... 8,000 people. It's unbelievable how contagious these women and young men have become in their cry for freedom. And so I, I don't think this is ending. And this is, uh, in my mind, a full blast revolution. And, and the art world, I didn't answer you. I wanted to say something. We were discussing it yesterday that it is as if when we're asking for people's help or attention, it's as if we're saying, look at these poor people, they're so oppressed. It's opposite. I, I think that um, the international community, including the art world, needs to take inspiration from the women of Iran, the young men of Iran, to see how imaginative, how incredibly powerful they are. They have zero fear. And imagine me, do I really want to have fear about art critics? When I watch this uh, People, I mean, I, you know, it's like you take such a different perspective about life, you know, what they're battling with. And in our opinion, woman life freedom is not a call just uniquely for Iran. It's for the whole humanity. It's for the whole world. So let the Western world also come under this umbrella of supporting such thing. You know, for us, we say 
Iranian people are leading the first female revolution. So we ask others to join us if they like. Shirin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. You can read more about this story on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. On Wednesday, the Whitney Museum of American Art opened an exhibition called No Existe Mundo Posuracan, a Puerto Rican art in the wake of Hurricane Maria. It marks the fifth anniversary of the storm that devastated Puerto Rico in 2017 and explores how artists have responded since. It features more than 50 works made over the last five years by more than 15 artists from Puerto Rico and the diaspora. Among them is Gabriela Torres Ferrer, and I discussed their sculpture and titled Value Your American Lie from 2018 with the curator of the exhibition, Marcela Guerrero. Marcela, before we start talking about art and artists, can you remind our listeners about Hurricane Maria? Because that's the kind of catalyst for this exhibition and also for this artwork. So tell us more about Hurricane Maria first. Hurricane Maria was a Category 5 hurricane The moment it touched Puerto Rico, it went down to a high-end Category 4. In some places, it was felt, the winds were felt as a Category 5, but technically in Puerto Rico, it was a Category 4 hurricane that devastated the archipelago of Puerto Rico on September 20th, 2017, two weeks after another hurricane, Hurricane Irma, had crossed all over the Caribbean. And can you give us an idea of the scale of devastation, both human and in terms of infrastructure, environment and so on? It caused devastation at many, many levels. It's important for people to know that this happened in the context of a place, of a nation, of an archipelago that had announced in 2016 a massive debt of $70 billion. And because of that, under the Obama administration, there was a law that was passed called the PROMESA law because of its acronym. And it basically put into the government of Puerto Rico um, this fiscal board that is now responsible for passing the budget. So without a, you know, a, an approved budget by this fiscal board, not much can be done. So this is the content. This is the backdrop of when the hurricane happened. When the hurricane happened, the power grid went completely down, which wasn't the first time that that had happened. Um, A year prior, there was also a massive blackout that lasted for days. So again, it happened. There was no cell phone coverage. People were driving, I mean, risking their lives to go to the highway, kind of lifting their phones, trying to get signal to get in touch with loved ones. That's why it was so difficult for many of us in the diaspora to get in touch with our friends and family. Many people describe the island the day after, once they went out, there's always that moment, that next day when you finally emerge out of your house, where people describe the island as being almost like scorched, you know, completely burnt. Um, nature was absolutely you know, down and and the trees and everything um, as if someone had lit a a match. And we eventually found out that also because of that, because of the hurricane, many ecological patterns were changed. Also, we lost a lot of lives. That's also a topic that's in the exhibition. I mean, it's also kind of a problematic or the way that was reported. At first, it was 16 people. Then the official count went up to 64. But Harvard University published a study that um, estimated the deaths in to 4,645, and that number is pretty symbolic. So a lot of catastrophes, a lot of devastation, a lot of loss in many forms, not only physical and in the infrastructure, but lives, the idea of the loss of this Puerto Rico that we knew. So it happened in many levels. Now, tell us about Gabriela Torres Ferrer. We're going to talk about a work by them. Give us a bit of background on them to begin with. Gabriela Torres Ferrer is an artist uh, based in Berlin, which is really interesting because the exhibition is kind of split 50-50. There's 11 artists from the archipelago, you know, working and based in the archipelago of Puerto Rico, and then nine of them in the diaspora. Gabriela is that one artist that represents the wider, bigger diaspora in Europe, you know, someone who left around the time of the hurricane. And so the work that is on view is called Untitled Value Your American Lie. 
That American lie, I'll go into that phrase, but basically it's a work, is debris found in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane. It's a lamppost that was found, you know, on the ground. And that lamppost, you know, you see the cables, you see there's no light bulb, you see that it's visibly, it's a ruin. It doesn't work. And on the post itself, there's a sign that says, value your American citizenship, guarantee it, vote statehood, June 11th, 2017. So I might be paraphrasing, but that's basically the main messages. This gray gallery called Embajada, that's in San Juan, ran by Christopher Rivera and Manuela Paz, they put an exhibition called PM, very clever name, which in fact, you know, after the hurricane, a lot of people started referring to Puerto Rican history, a little bit of like before Maria or, or post Maria, so PM. And one of the works in that show was this lamppost that they basically, Gabriela and Christopher, went out with a pickup truck, put it on the bed of the pickup truck, and took it to the gallery. The gallery is, now they've expanded, but um, back then it used to be this very narrow gallery. So basically in order to put it at the end of the gallery, they chopped part of the, of the lamppost and they jammed it into the gallery space. And it's in that space, it was propped diagonally, very much representing this tenuous positioning, very precarious. And so in that clever move of something that should be erect, should be vertical and just tilting it diagonally, you're talking about um, an imbalance of power. There is an equity between the U.S. And, and Puerto Rico. It is a territory of the United States, which is basically a euphemism for a colony. We are not treated as citizens like any other state. In fact, we don't have all the rights, even in Puerto Rico. We can vote for a president in Puerto Rico. I mean, it's, it's just a whole roster of inequities in terms of how people are treated. Is it right you can vote for a governor, but so you have no say, even though supposedly you're welcomed into the United States, there is no agency effectively that Puerto Rico has in relation to the United States. Correct. People in Puerto Rico only vote for governor. But if you move, like I did, to the United States, then you can vote for president. But in Congress, which is also important in the context of this work, in Congress, which is ultimately the body that would decide or could decide on the status, ultimate status of Puerto Rico, whether it becomes a state or independent or anything, or acknowledges the right to self-determination, that's all in the power of Congress. As an unincorporated territory, Puerto Rico has voice, but it doesn't have a vote. So it has a representative there that can say whatever they want, but they can't vote. So in this sign that Gabriela found, it says vote pro-statehood in what we call in Puerto Rico un plebiscito, a plebiscite, which is a fancy word for a referendum. We've had many of these, but they're theatrics. They're basically inconsequential. They're non-binding, but people get obsessed over them because it's a barometer to know where people's minds are at and what the populace wants, you know, whether they want. And historically, it's been like, well, when we vote for governor, it's usually the pro-statehood party gets 50%. The status quo party votes 50%. That's to maintain this commonwealth. Anyway, so the plebiscite that, that happened on June 11th, people boycotted it. So it's been reported that 97% voted for statehood. And that's what, you know, the pro-statehood party likes to talk about. But the little fact that they don't mention is that only 23% of the people voted. So obviously you get these skewed numbers. And so it's really clever when Gabriela decided to take the post with the sign and also title it Your American Lie, because it's basically saying your American citizenship, this, you know, so cherished thing that all, you know, Puerto Ricans are like, wow, but if we become independent, we're not going to have citizenship. Well, your citizenship didn't help you that much, you know, in the aftermath of the hurricane, when people in San Juan, which is basically fares the best after anything, you know, my, and that's where my parents live and where I grew up, people didn't get power until three months later. And I think the last household that was reported to get power back was almost a year after the hurricane. And I think also, Ben, I think it's important to talk about how this discussion within a museum like the Whitney and the Museum of American Art 
you know, it's important to talk about citizenship and, and how this, as I said before, this coveted thing is also treated very unfairly and unjustly. And, you know, we've at the museum, there have been moments when artists haven't been able, a period of time during a different administration regime where artists couldn't enter the collection because they weren't citizens. And so it's a thought concept. And I think that's what Gabriela's saying through their work. The very fact that it's a ruin indicates that the very concept is ruinous. Right. If you know what I mean, it's totally. very metaphorical in that sense, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, an absolute ruin. As I said before, when it was first shown that work, it was jammed, as I said, into the gallery. But for our presentation, we decided to make it float. <laughs> as someone pointed out when we were installing, it's like it's in this limbo which Puerto Rico is very much in a uh, political limbo. So it's like floating, also uncanny. Like everything is so uncanny. Like, why are we in this position? Like, this is ridiculous. And also thinking about how, where it's positioned, it's like one end of the exhibition space, the gallery. And then on the other end, you have works by El Perez, for example, which is this incredible video, Wednesday, Friday, you know, it's during a blackout. So you have on one hand, like the tediousness of what happens when the sun goes down to study in black and white and light and shadows. But then the other part is, you know, young people just frolicking, having fun, unadulterated fun during a blackout. And so how this imposed ruined condition will not deter people from joyously boycotting and resisting their conditions. Absolutely. I was going to say it's a, it's a sort of gesture of resistance in itself, isn't it? The very act of picking up a piece of debris and saying, this has value and these are the values it strikes. You know, it strikes me that that's a really powerful gesture in itself to actually say there's value in something that has previously been lying on the street amongst all this horrific devastation. Exactly. It's like, what do we value? And at this moment, we value these reminders of how this is unacceptable. Marcella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. No Existe Un Mundo Pos Huracán, Puerto Rican Art in the Wake of Hurricane Maria, is at the Whitney Museum in New York until the 23rd of April 2023. And that's all for this week. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentle and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Masha and Ragnar, Amy and Shirin and Marcel. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.